Dr. Geneva Speaks. Thank you for tuning in to Dr. Geneva Speaks, where you'll hear amazing leaders from across the nation and around the world. Your host, Dr. Geneva Williams, a cutting-edge, transformational leadership coach, hopes and believes this show will enlighten, entertain, and inspire you to make a difference in the world. So listen up as Dr. Geneva Speaks. Hi, everyone. This is Geneva Williams, and welcome, welcome, welcome. As as you know, the whole month of March, we've been recognizing, celebrating Women's History Month. And, and you know, it started off as a day, and then it became a week, and now it's a month where uh, women all across the world, all across the country are recognized and remembered um, about their contributions and the awesomeness that women have uh, contributed and, and given to the to this country, to the world, to their community. And you know, we've been featuring conversations with uh, top leaders as we explore the thinking of today's CEOs of corporations, presidents of nonprofits, and chief of everything entrepreneurs and community activists who are leading their market to their organization and really making an impact on the community. And we're so delighted today to have a very special uh, guest and friend, community activist, community leader uh, in Detroit. And let me tell you, in 2012, more than 2 million Michigan voters elected Democrat Kim Trent to an eight-year term on the Wayne State University Board of Governors. And that's our guest today. Kim's priority as a board member with Wayne State University is working to improve the university's graduation rate for African-American undergraduate students. Um, But before she even got involved in uh, with Wayne State, and she's had a tremendous career. She began as an award-winning reporter for the Detroit News, covering uh, City Hall, uh, the City Council in Detroit, the mayors of Detroit, both Coleman Young and Dennis Archer. And in 1996, she moved to Cape Town, South Africa, where she earned a graduate diploma in African Studies from the University of Cape Town. Um, After that, she returned to the U.S. and uh, joined the Washington staff of Congresswoman Carolyn Cheeks Kilpatrick and then served for five years with the Congresswoman. And then she joined the staff of United States Senator Debbie Stabenow as uh, the senator's regional manager for Detroit. Following that, it doesn't stop there, (laughs) because following that in 2007, she was appointed director of Governor Jennifer Granholms, that's the governor of Michigan, her uh, her southeastern Michigan office. And this was a cabinet-level position in state government. And so she's had a tremendous career in government service. And Kim Trent now serves as education policy manager for Michigan Future School, which is a think tank focused on creating strategies 
to, to prepare young people and Michiganders for this knowledge-based economy. Uh, Kim holds a BA in journalism and Africana studies and a MA in communications. She's completed fellowships with the American Political Science Association in D.C. and the Political Leadership Program at Michigan State University. She's just an awesome, awesome leader uh, in Detroit and nationally. She frequently writes. She's an author. Um, She's a radio show frequent guest. And she just recently took on a, a really important community leadership assignment as head of the Enough Sexual Assault in Detroit campaign, and we're going to talk to her more about that, and that's an effort to raise more than $600,000 to process abandoned rape kits in Detroit. So you know that's a very important thing. She's also a member of Delta Sigma Theta, and she lives in Detroit with her husband, who's an author and communication Mm. consultant and has a young son. So Kim... I mean, you know, I could just go on and on. I could just go on and on. Uh, but welcome, Kim Trent. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Williams. I am so pleased to be on with you. Um, certainly, there are few people. When I think about leaders, you are definitely one of the first people I think about. You're a great mentor, and I'm just honored to be in your presence, even if it's just well, you know speaking across the lines. We appreciate it. Yes. <laughs> Well, well, thank you, and back at you, because I admire you and and have for many years, and and just so impressed by, you know, the the twist and turns and wonderful opportunities uh, that you've been in, and the opportunities that you've had to give back to service in, in community. But first, let's get to know Kim Trent on a on an upfront and personal level. Tell us about your tell us about your upbringing. Where where did you spend your childhood? Tell us about you. Okay. Well, my family's been in Michigan for a long time. Um my three of my four grandparents were born here. Um on my father's side of the family, they've been here since um kind of the 1830s. So, we've been around here for a mm. while. Um, and so really deep roots. My great-grandparents were charter members of um, Hartford Memorial Baptist Church, and I'm still a member there um, today. Um, grew up in High- um, born in Detroit, grew up in Highland Park, Michigan, actually. Uh, my mm-hmm. father was an administrator at Highland Park Community College. My mom um, is a lawyer, and um, my father went on to, um, at one point, was the director of, of the city of um, Detroit's health department and worked in its um, um, substance abuse uh, prevention um, department for many years. So very, very mm-hmm. passionate. Both mm-hmm. of my parents were very passionate about um, serving the community. I grew up in a house that, you know, where there was a fair amount of political discourse. My father at one point worked for the mayor of Highland Park, the first black mayor of Highland Park, uh, Robert Blackwell, and mm-hmm. I just grew up kind of always caring about. Uh, I just remember um, in the seventies. Uh, I remember when Barbara Jordan and when Barbara Jordan spoke at the um, Democratic National Committee um, at the convention when Jimmy Carter was nominated. 
I was seven, mm-hmm. but I remember it so mm-hmm. vividly. <laughs> I mean, I was just, mm-hmm. I think I was a little, uh, I was a different child, I think, in some ways, because I was, I felt very politicized. I was very, mm-hmm. um, I was a reader. I loved, I read, the, I read both local newspapers every day. Um, mm-hmm. And I just enjoyed. Um, I was a nerd, <laughs> and now I think it's kind of in fashion to be a nerd. I was, but I was a nerd before it was cool. So, um, you know, I was a, a bookworm. Um, I, I, you know, when I think when it, a lot of my peers were thinking about like the Silvers and the Jackson Five, I was thinking about Barbara Jordan and Shirley Chisholm. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just a little different, I think, and so um, I really admired people like Irma Henderson at a really young age. And so I just grew up here um, always, you know, not really aspiring to be involved in politics, but I always knew that I loved to write. And so when I was a student at Cass Tech, I was on the newspaper staff, and I got picked out for a scholarship at Wayne State University, um, a program they have called the Journalism Institute for Minorities, which um, I just thought was, you know, I really wasn't I, I wasn't high on staying in Detroit to be honest with you. I wasn't really well. I knew I wanted to stay, live in Detroit as an adult, but I, you know, thought I'd go away to college. And um, I got this opportunity to to go to school at Wayne State, and Wayne State really wasn't even on my list to be honest with you. Um, I was looking at Howard University or University of Michigan. You know, I thought it was important to have that experience. Um, you know, to live away from home and that kind of thing. But I stayed here, and I got a summer internship well the way that my scholarship was set up I had four summer internships with the Detroit News and so when I graduated Mm -hmm. from college my very first job was covering city government which is a that's a big job Mm -hmm. for a 22 year old Mm -hmm. especially when Coleman Young is right so um Mm -hmm. you know I I really got an opportunity to um to you know kind of be in some rooms and be in be in settings that most 22-year-olds, I mean, especially in the field of journalism, you typically start at a very small newspaper and then kind of work your way up. But I was on one of the top beats at the paper at a really young age, which was a blessing and a curse in some ways, because I I think in some ways at the time I took it for granted. I didn't really realize how, um, you know, the kind of trust that people were putting in me. And But it's a, it was definitely a blessing, too, because I kind of got thrown in the fire. I, told, I always joke that if your first job out of college is covering Coleman Young, you know, that that's really baptism by fire because he wasn't mm-hmm. a big fan of the media. He was an extremely bright, smart, right. savvy person. And so, you know, I really felt like I learned a lot from that experience, certainly. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and then I had a, a, a team of colleagues who were amazing. And it was just, you know, it was a very interesting time. Um, I was there when we had the transition from Mayor Young to Mayor Archer. So I had an opportunity okay. to... You know, that was an important time in Detroit's history, obviously, mm-hmm. the first first mayor after having Mayor Young for for 20 years. So, um, you know, I, I so I've so, just so, been so someone me, I've always cared about, um, you know, yeah, trying so to make let, the community let better. Ask, mm-hmm. Let me ask you about that experience that, that you mm-hmm. just mentioned about uh, being a young uh, reporter, 22, and mm-hmm. uh, covering... Uh, uh, an icon, a giant in our community, uh, mm-hmm. Mayor Coleman Alexander Young. And t- tell us a little bit about what that was like and what did you learn from him? Well, first of all, I was terrified of Mayor Young. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. I really was. I mean, I just, you know, obviously this was the only mayor I knew. Mayor Young became mayor when I was five. So mm-hmm. okay. I, I had no other frame of reference for a mayor. Um, and, you know, obviously he was a larger-than-life figure. So um, I think for me, 
it was daunting. And then I also, naturally, my natural inclination as a person, I'm very much an introvert. I'm shy, although I'm not, I'm not I, well, I probably have out, maybe outgrown my shyness a little bit, but I'm not, yeah, yeah, I was, I'm I not some, I, I enjoy my own company, you know, <laughs> I just don't. Well, well, Kim, I was going to say that that's clearly something that you probably did outgrow. <laughs> I, I, well, I tell people, I was, even when I tell people I'm an introvert, introvert, they don't believe it, but I'm very much an introvert. That's okay. definitely true. Even, okay. even today, I would okay. say I'm still an introvert. Um, okay. But, you know, I think that being a journalist, I think being a journalist is the ideal profession for the beginning of a career for anybody because it teaches you um, how to, I mean, obviously you cannot be shy and be an effective journalist because you have to be able to ask tough questions, you have to be able to network, um, Mm -hmm. you have to be able to be very aggressive, you have to, um, and then it teaches you other good habits like meeting deadlines, like, um, you know, being um, entrepreneurial and and finding stories where other people don't find them and innovative. Um, it, it was a it was a really amazing career. Now, I really went into the career thinking it would be my first and last career, but um, you know, I've had probably three or four careers since then. So, but I've um, you know, I really am grateful for that opportunity to. Um, and then you know, it really taught me a lot about government. That you know, I didn't study government mm-hmm. in college. I, mm-hmm. I studied journalism and Africana studies. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, having that firsthand experience working, um, covering city council meetings and understanding how government works and understanding how uh-huh. to best petition uh-huh. elected officials and the importance of having personal relationships with um, – and, and, and getting to know the staff. I think a lot of times we mm-hmm. think that uh, we, we discount the importance of the folks who work with our elected officials, you know. So I, I just think mm-hmm. – I, I just thank God every day for that opportunity, and I also thank God every day. Unfortunately, we had this horrible strike that happened in 1995, and I left the Detroit News. And at the time, it just seemed like the worst thing that could possibly happen to me. But it was it, – once again, I, looking back on it now, I realize it was a blessing for me because I probably mm-hmm. would still be working at the News. And, and we all know that – um, you know, journalism has changed a lot since you know, yes. 1995. So I don't know mm-hmm. that a daily a job at a daily newspaper right now would have been something I would have enjoyed as much as I did then. So, mm-hmm. um, but I think mm-hmm. it's a great foundation for any kind of career that you would you would want to have. Um, a lot of people I don't know steer folks away from a career in journalism because you know obviously the job the industry is changing. Um, you know. It's not as professionalized as it once was. I mean, anybody with a pen or or a, um, a computer can be a journalist now. Um, so it, it doesn't, I don't think, have the prestige that it once had. But I think it's an amazing um, first career. I don't know that I would advise somebody to go into it thinking it's the long game because I don't, I don't know that people start in a career in journalism and, you know, end 40 years later having still been a journalist. I, I don't know that that happens very much anymore. But I thought it was ama- an amazing tra- training ground for me. And because mm-hmm. I was covering politics, I was able to make the transition to working for politicians, you know. So it, mm-hmm. it was a mm-hmm. very smooth transition for me. So when did you – and so but you went to Africa. I did. Uh, when, yeah, so when did that come to help us understand okay. what got you there, what got you to go there, and where did well, that Well, it's actually kind of a funny story. Career? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, it, so I had won a fellowship from the Rotary Foundation, and the way the fellowship was set up, you could go any. You had to make a proposal to the foundation 
um, about your, you know, studying for a year abroad, and they paid for you to go to the, you know, your transportation to the school. They paid living expenses for a year, and they paid your tuition. And so I proposed that I would go to the University of Ghana. That was my plan. I was going to go to the University of Ghana and okay. study, I think, Ashanti culture. And I was a, uh, at the time I was a reporter at the news. I was going to take a leave of absence for a year from the news to go to Africa. So this happened in 1995, mm-hmm. ironically. So we went on strike in, I think, June um, for the Detroit News. And then about mm-hmm. a month later, I found out that the professors at the University of Ghana went on strike as well. So oh. I said, oh, okay, okay. okay. well, hopefully that'll right. be over. Well, first of all, I was very naive because I thought our strike would be over, you know, within a matter of weeks, and I think it ended about five mm-hmm. years later. And I thought the strike mm-hmm. at the University of Ghana, I said, well, that'll be over. I'm not going to school until September. It'll be over by then. And then when it got to be about August, I thought, you know, the strike was still went on. I said, oh, I better come up with a plan B because the fellowship was only for a year, so I had to – you know, people say, well, why don't you look at a school that's in the Southern Hemisphere because they start school in February instead of starting in, you know, because obviously the seasons are opposite. So I applied. Uh, somebody said, why don't you go to school to South, in South Africa? And I thought, South Africa, because you have to remember, this is 1995. Apartheid right. just ended. You know, it was it was mm-hmm. a kind of dicey time in my view to go to South Africa. I mean, South Africa mm-hmm. was not a place I really aspired to go to, to be honest with you, you know, just because of all the political strife and everything. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. that honest to God was the probably the best mistake that ever happened in my life. It was amazing for me to go to South Africa at that time. I um, was there... You know, as someone who's kind of a political junkie, I can't think of a better time to have been in in South Africa. I I had an opportunity to be on site when um, President Mandela signed the country's first post-apartheid constitution. Um, I was in the room the day FW. I was actually in the room the day FW the clerk apologized for apartheid on behalf of the National Party. I mean, Mm. it was just fascinating. How 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 you? How did you get in the room? Well, I was I covered it as a reporter. I was ah, freelancing stories, okay. so I was a journalist. Okay. You know, I was a foreign journalist because you know. Uh-huh. So it, I, I had an opportunity to be there, and it was just it's mind blowing to think of. And mm-hmm. I, I don't see, to be honest, we didn't even really know that that, that was going to happen that day. And it was, um, mm-hmm. you know, I I just remember thinking to myself, "Oh my God, history just happened," and I was here for it. Mm-hmm. So, and you were um, right there. I was there, and then um, when I was at the I was studying at the University of Cape Town, and. Um, at the time, they got their first um, African president, a woman named Mampela Rampele, um, who went on to be the president of the um, World Bank. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, because she was the first African to um, be the president of a South African university or of, of a traditionally white South African university, um, when she was installed, pri- Vice President Gore came and Tony Blair, who was the prime minister of England at the time. You know, so all these world leaders came because it was a huge deal. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, looking back on it, I mean, that was exactly where I was supposed to be. So I was so um, mm-hmm. thrilled that I was able to spend that time. It was, And I, I think it really did kind of stoke my I already had interest in politics, having covered it um, as a reporter, but that really kind of took it to another level, being in South mm-hmm. Africa and mm-hmm. watching the the political process when you had a brand new political process that was emerging. So it was, it was mm-hmm. I, I covered um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. That's where um, President, you know, former President de Klerk apologized for South for apartheid. Mm-hmm. So. You know, and to see that that process play out, where you know a government was saying, "Let's have kind of a national um, process for atonement and reconciliation." It was just so 
fascinating to watch. I mean, I wish we could really go undergo that in a meaningful way here in America because there's mm-hmm. you know, so much in our history that I think deserves examination, apology, you know, however you want to um, frame it. And I think part of the reason why we're so sick in a lot of ways is because we never want to deal with those things. So, mm-hmm. so it was it was so, fascinating so, to be in South Africa at that time. And it must have been just an extraordinary um, influence and impact on the way you you think and how you carry out what it is that you do today. That kind of experience. You you mentioned it was the uh, I think you said the the best mistake right. you ever made. <laughs> And and right. I'd like you to talk talk a little bit about that because oftentimes I think um, leaders, when they reflect on what has happened to them, they often uh, go to those things where they failed or they made mistakes because it seems like within that space is where the best lessons came. It, did you do you find that to be the case? Absolutely. I mean, I think that um, I think that I and when I was younger, I was a lot more risk adverse. I mean, I think generally most people, as they get older, um, tend to be more conservative. But I think that the lessons that I've learned as I've gotten older is if you don't take risk, I think you'll have bigger regrets than if you mm-hmm. just kind of take the safe route. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as I said, I'm kind of a naturally you know, I've, I've I've evolved in some ways, but um, you know, my natural kind of um, nature is to be more conservative, more um, um, retiring, maybe. And I think that as I've gotten older, I am more willing to take risks. And a lot of that is just having, you know, just living. And you and you get to mm-hmm. see, um, you know, although I will say my political kind of orientation is, I, I like to think of myself as being kind of a radical radical pragmatist <laughs> because I do okay. think, you know, there's a way that you can be so revolutionary in your thinking that you don't get anything done because you do have to build mm-hmm. consensus. You do have to help share your vision so that other people buy into it. I mean, if you're just going to go out on a limb all the time and then not have a practical way forward for people, it's not really, I don't think you're providing strong leadership. So, but I I do think that I am definitely more of a risk taker because I've I've seen how things that at the time seem like a a major risk or something that um you know might end up being a regret tend to kind of work out and then you think, wow, thank goodness I took that path rather than just taking a conservative path and then I would mm-hmm. you know probably have a life full of regret. So, um, mm-hmm. I do think that it's such an important part of growth to make mistakes and to allow yourself to make mistakes. And, you know, in this work that I do now in, in education, one of, the, one of the most profound things that I've learned in, and I don't, I'm not an educator, but I've kind of been studying educators for the last few years, and one of the most mm-hmm. profound things I've learned is that culturally African Americans, because we were treated the way we were treated for so long and because, um, you know, we were treated as less than, in a lot of ways, we're very risk adverse um, because at one, at one mm-hmm. point, when you know, for black people to take risk was putting your life in danger. So That's right. we we also believe that when we make mistakes, our children, um, if they like, you know, and I pay attention to this a lot now as, as someone who's on the board for a university, uh, white children who grow up in kind of stable middle class um, neighborhoods 
realize that if you screw up, that's just one mistake, and you can recover from it. Mm-hmm. They're a lot more resilient because the whole world is structured around their success. And I think a lot of times mm-hmm. for black children, we grow up thinking, oh, I screwed up. You know, that's why if a student, sometimes a lot of our black students, when they go to college, they are afraid to ask for help. And they, mm-hmm. um, if they get a bad grade, they, they're ashamed, and they, just, they would rather drop out than ask for help. Well, white students are just more, I mean, first of all, they're more likely to go to an administrator and say, you messed up. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, mm-hmm. they're much better advocates for themselves. And I think that's a, a big part of it is the cultural thing where we um, have this sense of shame about things that, we, that is really a part of the natural um, process of growth. And so, um, you know, I, I really think having learned that, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm raising a son now, he's seven, and I'm very mm-hmm. cognizant of letting him make his mistakes and working with him mm-hmm. to try to figure out, okay, well, how could we have done this differently? Okay, what did we learn mm-hmm. from this? You know, rather than because I, I, you know, I think a lot of people are helicopter parents, and I think it's so important mm-hmm. not to do that. I think you stunt your child's growth if you don't let them make mistakes. Mhm, mhm. And and how does he? What's his reaction when you talk to him about? You know, you kind of sit back and have him reflect and and ask him what he learns. What, what's been his reaction? Well, my son is a little different. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a lot of times he'll throw it back on me. So, <laughs> what do you okay. like? But right. No, no. But he, no. I mean, I think my son is a very thoughtful child. I mean, he is very, mm-hmm. um, he's kind of wise behind beyond his years in a lot of ways. So, um, I, I think that he is. I mean, I'm, I'm actually kind of surprised and delighted sometimes that um, he does seem to learn from. You know, he'll he'll say, "Well, I mm-hmm. guess I learned that I shouldn't do this and so," rather than being resistant to mm-hmm. it. Uh, my husband mm-hmm. always laughs because my both my both of my parents and my sister, um, all and my grandmother all had degrees in um, kind of mental health. They all kind of have mental health um, college degrees, and my husband always accuses me of only for over analyzing everything. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, but I think that it's good to kind of have a, a sense of the bigger picture and okay, well, how is this going to help you grow as a person and you know, what can you take away from this experience? And so I, I'm actually kind of glad that I grew up in a family where people ask those questions kind of a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I know that role modeling is uh, very, very important. And, you know, you are a role model for not only your son, but for many other children in, in terms of the work you do. And, and, you know, I wanted to ask you about, you know, you've, uh, at a young age, you saw Barbara Jordan and a Shirley Chisholm, certainly icon women, and then you had the opportunity to work for modern-day iconic women, uh, Carolyn Cheeks Kilpatrick, Debbie mm-hmm. Stabenow. What did you learn from these iconic women? Oh, wow, so much. How can I even? I mean, and, and it's funny because I, I learned, so I worked for Congresswoman Kilpatrick, for Senator Stabenow, and then I went on to work for um, Governor Granholm. And That's all right. three of them That's are right. very different mm-hmm. kinds of of leaders. Um, um, but they all had to kind of grapple with a lot of, you know, um, I think in all three cases, to be honest with you, I think people would often underestimate them. And I think that okay. they both they all navigated that in a really graceful way, and mm-hmm. um, especially Debbie Stabenow, I think. I mean, I think Debbie has this very warm kind of um, almost like um, 
like she's your aunt kind of feel to her. Mm-hmm. But she mm-hmm. might be one of the smartest people I've ever met. She's brilliant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's savvy. You don't have a career like she's had where you've um, been an elected official since you're 23 or 24 years old, um, and you've gone from being a county commissioner to a U.S. senator, and you're a woman. You don't have that kind of career unless you're a very, very bright person. And um, mm-hmm. I think that... I, you know, from each of the each of those women you just named, I, I learned a lot about resilience. I learned a lot about um, kind of being able to uh, manage, because especially in politics, a lot of the um, money makers and a lot of the people who make things happen are men. So um, gaining the confidence of um, a lot of different kinds of people, um, I think that. Uh, from Jennifer Granholm, I realized I learned um, the grace, having grace at times of great adversity. Adversity. I was with her during her second term, which you know, in a lot of ways, was probably one of the hardest periods that in the in the history of the state of Michigan, um, just given what happened with the auto industry and everything. And I think that she um, really demonstrated incredible leadership during through that. Um, uh, Congresswoman Kilpatrick was the first um, woman from from Michigan to serve on the Appropriations Committee, and from her I learned the value of kind of reaching across the aisle, of learning how to network, of learning how to um, make things happen, even when you're not in the majority. Um, you know, obviously a lot of that time the Democrats mm-hmm. were in the minority, um, but she, you know, knew how to talk to folks to make make things happen despite, you know, those kinds of, of obstacles. So, I mean, I think all of them had incredible um, um, lessons for me for leadership, and um, I, I feel very grateful. And really, I, I, I didn't even really think of them as being women leaders when I was working for them. But then I think when I left, I, I said, wow, I really worked for three kind of important, amazing, you know, women <laughs> leaders. And I think right, I took away from right. all three of them different things. So it, it definitely, I definitely am very grateful for that training ground. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And now you've, uh, you know, again, you've worked for incredible leaders and you yourself now have taken on uh, certainly a number of, of leadership roles. Of course, you're your work at Wayne State University, uh, but also you're involved now in not just what's happening in Detroit, but nationally in terms of um, getting rape kits tested. And so why don't you tell us a little bit about that and what does that mean? But, but you know, as, as you share with our audience uh, what this whole 490 campaign is about, I'm I'm very interested in how come you got involved. You know, it's funny because um, I get asked that question a lot, and and I, you know I'll tell you what really happened. <laughs> what really happened mm-hmm. was that I was on Facebook, <laughs> and I, okay. I feel kind of embarrassed to talk about my. I, I have a slight Facebook addiction, so I was on <laughs> Facebook, and you know, frankly, what happened was we were having a discussion about Bill Cosby, and mm-hmm. um, as often happens when those, when folks have that discussion. It just kind of degenerated and got very nasty um, because people are very protective of the image of Dr. Cosby. And, again, I, I, my, what I don't like is these discussions as if people were in the room and can say with absolute certainty 
that, oh, this woman is lying, this woman, you know. The victim shaming just really infuriated me. I mean, I, I saw it from a lot of, I saw it from a lot of women. Well, what was she doing going to the room? What was she, you know, as if, you know, all of the onus was put on these um, alleged victims. And so I had a particularly nasty fight with someone on Facebook. And uh, right around that time, I had read a, an article, a column that the Detroit Free Press published by Nancy Kaffer about the culture that existed in the Detroit Police Department that allowed this rape kit fiasco to happen. Because a lot of it was just about people not really valuing um, the importance of serving these survivors, you know, and mm-hmm. just you know, kind of the place of women in society. and Because really, when people ask me, how did this happen, I can't answer that question because it seems really unfathomable to me that, you know, 11,341 rape kids could just sit in a, a closet and no one do anything about it for going back, you know, mm-hmm. 35 years. So um, I read this column by Nancy, and the, the column just absolutely infuriated me. I thought it was sickening. Um, you know, I, I don't. Uh, I think we've talked about it before, but in the column, one of the things that really stood out was there was a 14-year-old girl who she and her mom came in to report that she had been raped, and the officer who took her report actually wrote in his report, "This heifer is tripping," and mm. I discouraged her from filing a report because you know he just was skeptical about her all the time, and it's just so unprofessional, it's so inappropriate, it's so um, dismissive. And that's the kind of culture that allowed um, this catastrophe to happen. And so but that married with my kind of irritation about um, kind of the victim blaming that I saw with the Cosby situation. I decided, okay, having fights with people on Facebook is not going to really move the needle. So I need to do something meaningful about this challenge that we have with raising money to get these rape, kit pro- rape kits processed. And so – you know, this one thread I had, that I think there were about 60 or 70 comments, and I finally said, you know what, I'm going to get off of this thread, and I'm going to go call somebody about working on this rape kit issue because I just need to do something constructive rather than just having fights on Facebook because that's not going to change anything. And so the next day I, I called um, Peg Tallett, who had, Peg had reached out to me earlier in the year to ask me if I would help them organize black women, and I said, you know, that seems like a really big you know, um, big fight. And I don't know that I have the capacity or the bandwidth right now because, you know, I have this child that I'm raising, I have a job, I have other community obligations. But, you know, when I decided to jump in, I just, I'm all in with it now. And so mm-hmm. although I don't get paid for this job, I okay. feel like it's my mission. So, um, all right. So that's how and, I got it. And so, so, okay, so help help us understand what the situation is what is the okay. problem when you say rape kits tested what mm-hmm. is that and and i know you mentioned uh getting in a peg talent called you mm-hmm. and that's right she's with the michigan women's women's foundation, foundation. So, so, right so tell, so tell us a little bit about what's the problem what happened what's the, okay, and, yeah. so starting from the beginning what is the problem in michigan mm-hmm. and and what is it that your efforts are trying to do okay so in 2009, a member of Prosecutor Kim Worthy's staff discovered 11,341 abandoned rape kits. So rape kits are um, when when a when a person is sexually assaulted, a technician um, basically swabs her body. 
for DNA evidence, for hairs, for fibers, for things to try to link her attack to someone who's a known attacker. And, and the way they did, they do mm-hmm. that is if there are other rape kits that where the DNA matches, then you know the person who raped person A is the same person who raped person P, okay? So, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. And, and it's really important because what a lot of people don't recognize is um, the average rapist rapes between 7 and 11 times. Out of the rape kits that have been processed in Detroit, they've already identified about 700 serial rapists. So, mm-hmm. you know, these men don't just attack one time, typically. So mm-hmm. if more than one of his victims has, um, you know, has had gone through the process of having a rape kit processed um, and the rape, rape kit actually gets processed, then there's a, that's a very strong law enforcement tool. In fact, it, it raises the probability of a successful prosecution by about 50% if there's, um, mm-hmm. you know, rape okay. evidence. Well, what has happened, okay. unfortunately, though, cities like Detroit, and Detroit is by far not the only city where this happened, okay? So I, I do want to mm-hmm. make that clear. Um, so you know, as they national, make budgetary decisions, it is a national this problem a national very much. So in fact, okay. the, um, United, the USA Today last year did a story that where they suggest they believe that there are at least 700,000 rape kits nationwide that have not been processed. Mm-hmm. So okay. I mean, uh, Memphis, Tennessee has about fifteen thousand. Los Angeles had about twelve thousand. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not mm-hmm. just a problem where in Detroit. However, because of where we are in Detroit's history, you know, just coming off of bankruptcy, um, having a county mm-hmm. that just nearly avoided bankruptcy and, and had to go to you know um, some uh, uh, um, reorganization. And, you know, the mm-hmm. state is just really kind of climbing out of the hole that we were in. So um, being in that position, and, and you have to remember what was going on in Michigan in 2009, too. So, you know, when some when, when Kim Worthy presented these rape kids, folks were like, get in line. We're trying to save Gen- General Motors. You know, we're trying to, you know. And so, unfortunately, I don't think that it got the attention from elected officials that it deserved. And so, um, you know, there were some efforts. I know that, you know, I was working at the state at the time, and um, I know that there were efforts to try to um, make the state's um, evidence lab work more collaboratively with Detroit. And, you know, there were efforts to try to um, help, but it's still, you know, we're talking about 11,000 rape kits, so that's not something that they could turn around right, right away. And, the, and a rape kit costs about $1,000 to process, but Kim Worthy was able to get the price knocked down to $490. And so be, through Kim, and Kim Worthy has just been an absolute um, hero on this issue. She's actually a, kind of the national expert on this issue now because of what we've gone through in Detroit. So we, have ha- we do have state legislation now to make sure that this never happens in the future, which is the good news. But we still have these 11,000 victims who – you know, still deserve their day in court. And so um, because of Kim Worthy's efforts, she's, you know, she with with the Michigan, she partnered with the Michigan Women's Foundation and with the Detroit Crime Commission to um, launch an, an organization called the Enough Sexual Assaults in Detroit, or Enough Said is what we call it. And um, it's a campaign to raise money. And we really, I mean, they really need to raise a lot of money. Um, they raised about, they've already raised about $14 million dollars and that's all gone towards the processing. They've processed about 10,000 of the 11,341 kids that were discovered. 
which leaves us with um, 1,341 kids. And that's where we came in. So we are the, what we call, um, we call ourselves the African American 490 Challenge. So $490 represents the amount that each kit costs to process. And again, because we have about 1,300 kits that are remaining, we're trying to raise $657,090 by the end of this year, and that will represent all of the remaining rape kits that have to be processed. So um, that's, that's, where, that's our place in the world right now. We're trying to process those um, remaining kits. And um, right now we started raising money in um, October. We kicked off this campaign in October at the um, Detroit Association of Women's um, Clubs, and um, which is a historic building um, in, in, um, near the Detroit Institute of Arts. We had about 100 women who stood with us and said they were going to um, support, you know, leaders of all kinds of different organizations. It was a really powerful moment. And from that moment on, we just, we just hit the ground running, and we've had a number of different um, events and campaigns and online challenges and um, organizations that have stepped up to help us raise the money. And so as of today, we've raised um, a, a little over 200000 we raised about $213,000 as of today. Um, and we have some really great things on the horizon. I, I really feel encouraged. Um, Dr. Williams was kind enough to host a event for us, and we were um, very grateful and, and served on our um, core committee. So we um, are sitting at her feet and learning from her every day. You know, she's an expert when it comes to fundraising. And just, um, you know, she just, we just learned from her in a lot of different kinds of ways. So we've been very blessed to bring together a coalition of leaders and um, fundraisers and um, public relations experts and community activists. I mean, all kinds of women have come together for this effort. So, um, you know, we're just really excited about it. And I feel very optimistic that we're going to make our goal of raising that $657,000 that we need to process the remaining kids. That's where we are now. We're very excited about it, and um, I'm pretty sure we're going, you know, I think there's some things that we're doing right now that I, um, we're laying the groundwork for some really important national work on this issue, too. Hello? Hi, sorry about that. I'm not sure what happened. <laughs> Yeah, well, we got disconnected for just a moment. But, okay. Uh, you, were, you were so much on a roll with that 490 <laughs> campaign. Please, please continue. Tell, tell us about, um, uh, you know, there's many stories, I'm sure, that um, you can probably think about in terms of, of women. I, I know that just recently, I think, um, we had a, a judgment uh, f- mm-hmm. uh, for a rapist who was convicted just Correct. today or yesterday. Tell us about that. So um, Mary Wilson, um, and, you know, I, you know, typically a lot of times uh, as a journalist, my training is um, normally you don't use the name of a, social, of a um, sexual assault um, survivor, but she has been very open about her story, and we're so proud of her. Um, she called me. Um, she somehow got my cell phone number and called me and just said, I just want to thank you for the work you're doing to raise money because she was um, sexually assaulted 20 years ago. Her case sat on a shelf for 20 years. 
Um, the person who attacked her, they suspect that he has attacked at least 13 women. Um, he has blamed his behavior on his addiction to crack, cocaine. But um, because of she, he he um, pled guilty in court with her, and he's going to um, he was sentenced to uh, uh, 15 to 25 years in prison, and that's okay. just for that one case. So we're we're um, you know I, I suspect he's probably going to spend the better part of his the rest of his life in prison um, as he mm-hmm. should, because obviously if you if you have raped probably 13 women, you don't need to be in society. Um, but mm-hmm. this woman, you know, um, I'm so admire Miss um, Wilson because she's so strong, and she um, really was able to articulate how um, disrespected she felt by she felt almost more disrespected by um, by the uh, police forces that did not process her kid. Um, she mm-hmm. felt as though mm-hmm. they were sending a signal that she didn't matter. And so she's been able to articulate mm-hmm. articulate that in a really meaningful way. So we are so grateful that she's um, come out um, from behind. You know, um, you know, again, a lot of people, because even today, people view sexual assault as a thing of shame for the victim rather than for the perpetrator. And so um, mm-hmm. there are so many people who think, you know, you, you shouldn't tell people if you've been a victim because it makes you, you know, people are questioned. I mean, this, again, you know, kind of the victim shaming that I talked about earlier. Um, so I'm very proud of, of how vocal she's been. And then there was another young lady who uh, made a very powerful video that we have on our um, Facebook page for Enough, oh, for the Enough Day 490. Mm-hmm. And she did a video because um, last week she, um, well, I guess about seven weeks ago, they told her that her DNA, I mean her um, DNA rape kit, had been processed, and that they got a hit on it. They want mm. her to come in and, and um, do a lineup. She did the lineup. She picked someone out, and she had just found out that her rape kit um, was connected to a, a, a person, and it was the person that she picked out in the lineup. So now, mm. you know, she's going to have her day in court, and. I swear I was crying so hard as I watched her video because she's so she's both emotional but very, very clear about what this was gonna mean for her own mental health that it made her feel like she was free for the first time in a long time and um you know, that she felt empowered. And so those I mean, those are the kind of antidotes and stories that we're trying to share with people so people understand this is these are real people, these are real women who it's not just a name in a box on a shelf. These are human beings who've had to live with the consequences of their attacks and even more of knowing that no one was held accountable for them. And even beyond no one being held accountable, the people who are here to protect them were the very people who let them down with this rape kit mm-hmm. thing. So I think it, mm-hmm. it really speaks to how women um, are valued and are valued or not valued in our um, community. Mm-hmm. So, um, and again, it's not just a Detroit problem. This is a national problem. But um, because of Detroit's um, financial situation, we knew that we were not, you know, it's not like local government could kick in an extra $14 million. Um, Because, Mm -hmm. by the way, we still need about $14 million more. And the reason for that is even though after after the rape kit gets processed, you have to have someone who's going to investigate those. You know, we have this... um, this system called CODIS, 
where, um, mm-hmm. you know, it has yes. the DNA analysis, and you can say, okay, this is someone's DNA profile. Is there anyone else in the system who has that profile? So somebody has to do that work, though. I mean, that actually has to be done. And um, just so, just to give you a frame of where we are in Detroit, we had, you know, 11,341 rape kits. Cleveland, Ohio had about 3,500. They had 30 investigators. We just now got up to 18. For a long time, we had about 12 investigators. So we're way behind on the number of investigators we have. We don't have as many prosecutors. Um, so we, I mean, uh, once a, even after the kits are processed, there's still going to be money that needs to be raised. But we thought it was important to at least get us to the point where the kits were processed. And we also look at this money that we're raising as a way to leverage more government dollars. Because once we get this, once we get the money in the door, and once you know the people who we elect understand that people in Detroit are willing to sacrifice for these women victims, I think they're going to be more in, more willing mm-hmm. to give the resources that we need on a um, national and state level to mm-hmm. make sure that the kids then get investigated and prosecuted. Mm-hmm. And we have about forty. Um, about 40 assailants who have been um, successfully prosecuted because of these kids as of now. But, again, we're still talking about 11,000 kids. So, I mean, that's a, that's a small number because, again, you still have to go through the process of investigating it and prosecuting. So um, it's, a lot, it's not going to just change overnight, but we want to make sure that the process will go on. Right. So, Kim, what do you say to the people who who feel or say, you know, isn't this government's responsibility? I tell them that they're right. I mean, they're 100% mm-hmm. right. I mean, just as this government's responsibility in Flint to make sure that the people have safe drinking water, um, mm-hmm. it certainly is a failure of government. And I think that, mm-hmm. you know, I personally think there should be investigations into how this happened. Beyond, I mean, there was this report that was generated that Nancy Caffer wrote about. But, you know, I think that there should be some accountability um, for those who are making the decisions. But, mm-hmm. Certainly, it was a failure of government, and government ultimately should be responsible for fixing it. But we also have to live in the real world, and the real world is right now, um, first of all, we have a billion-dollar mistake that has to be fixed in Flint. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, the state is not probably in a position to fully finance this. You know, we know the city doesn't have any money. Um, The county is just getting out of its um, financial issues. And so... um, Quite frankly, the question is whether or not you think it's important for these victims to get justice. Kim Worthy, thank goodness, has you know helped us champion legislation to make sure this won't happen in the future. But what mm-hmm. about all these victims who's who've been sitting on a shelf for twenty years, or for thirty-five mm-hmm. years, or for five years? Mm-hmm. Um, don't they deserve justice too? And so mm-hmm. you know, while I agree with the with the argument that government should be held responsible and they should be the ones who fix this mess, uh, Also, you also have to be realistic about the probability that they will do that. And the, and the truth of the matter is, I think that as we raise money, they will put more money into it, but they're not going to, they're not in a position to do it all. Mm-hmm. So while it, it, it clearly is a, a government function and responsibility to arrest, to prosecute, to try, to test cases, Mm -hmm. to test these kits, et cetera. I think I hear you saying that we we as citizens also have a responsibility to help out to get justice. And there are things that we can do. There are things that we can do as citizens. And what you're leading 
is the community effort side of things. So that absolutely, and I and I believe you know when I talk about being a radical pragmatist, <laughs> this is one yes. of the things I'm, yes. I spoke to a friend of mine who's just more just on the radical side of things, and he said we okay. shouldn't do that. We need to just make them pay for it. And I said that's uh-huh. not going to happen. I mean, you can, we can't okay. make. I mean, you know, obviously, ultimately, we want to force government to be more responsive and be more accountable, and to you know, yes, we do think that they should help clean up this mess, but we have to show them that we care enough about it. And, you know, just talking about it is not going to really move the needle. You know, again, these women deserve justice right now, and I don't think we are in a position to just say, well, we're just going to wait until Lansing gets this act together because, I mean, we we will be probably waiting for a long time, or Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I just think it's important for us to, um, you know, let our voices be heard. And, you know, that doesn't mean that we can't continue to turn up the heat on government to be involved, but – at the same time, we still need to try to move the needle so that these women's um, these women um, have the satisfaction of knowing that their kids have been processed. Okay, so so Kim, if um, if you were to if you were to just pick one of the uh, biggest lessons you've learned, a leadership lesson that mm-hmm. you've learned from your work thus far in the 490 campaign, what would it be? Well, I think one of the lessons that I've learned is humility in some ways because um, (laughs) it's been interesting as I've done this work, I've noticed how important it is for some people to get credit. Um, Mm -hmm. And I just think it's important I mean, sometimes you just have to kind of swallow your pride and say, if you need me to give you credit, I will give you credit just so we can move the needle. And, I, okay. I, you know, the human psyche is fragile and, and mm-hmm. egos are fragile. And I think that um, I, I don't think I, you know, I've been working around politics for a long time, so I, certainly it's not a foreign concept to me. It's not as if I haven't worked with mm-hmm. difficult people or people who are um, – you know, who are kind of are really hungry for attention or hungry for credit or whatever. But I think that this particular campaign, um, because it was something that, and Kim Worthy has been so amazing. She's been working in the trenches for so long, and I think she has shown such amazing gratitude to us. Um, you know, to me, she she deserves the lion's share of the, the credit, you know, if someone's going to get yeah. credit. But I, you know, uh-huh. for me, I've had to push my ego down too because, you know, there have been kind of Johnny Come Latelys who've come along, and I, I hate, I hesitate to even use that because that sounds um, derisive. But I don't. People who maybe weren't as interested in the issue until we kind of brought it to the fore, and I have to just keep my mind focused on the fact that it doesn't matter when people came to the table as long as they come to the table. And if they need credit in order to feel better about themselves or in order to feel like their work matters, then give it to them because that's, it's, it's okay. easy. Giving people credit is really kind of mm-hmm. a, a, not an expensive price mm-hmm. to pay. <laughs> mm-hmm. So um, well, I, mean, know, I can give credit well, all day know, long. Well, that's, so. you know, Kim and, again, You know, I think that is a credit to you and your leadership, this this aspect of humility that you talk about. Because you know what they 
they say about, uh, you know, success uh, has many parents, failure is an orphan. Right. And so you, <laughs> your, your effort must be very successful mm-hmm. because there's so many people who, you know, just want to be a part of this, who who want to sing its praises, who want to right. be involved and, and just, you know, just be a part of it. But I'm very aware and, that if we don't and, raise and that... And that six, credit goes to you. That's right. you got to raise that right. money. <laughs> but I'm very aware that if that $657,000 right. doesn't come through, all those folks yes. who are clamoring to get to the microphones are not going to be staying on the stage with me. Um, if if we're not successful, so I mean that just drives me to be more to be very laser focused on keeping us on track and making sure that we hit that goal. So I don't sleep at night because I want to make sure that that we hit that goal, not for right. my ego or self-aggrandizement, but because these victims, we've made a promise to these victims, and I want to I want to fulfill that promise. Mm-hmm. And keeping your eye on the prize, and and again, I think that's another leadership. Uh, strategy from you that we're hearing that you know it's important to keep. You know you got to deal with the day to day. You got to deal with mm-hmm. the politics. You got to deal with with all of those. You have to be resilient to have the grace and all of that, um, and keep your eye on the prize. Well, Kim, we have about a minute left, and before <laughs> we close out, I just want to ask you a question: What does what will Kim Trent? leadership legacy be? What would you like it to be? Well, I would like, ultimately, the same thing that inspired me to get involved in this campaign, I think, drives me. I want my niece, who's 16, and other young women who are coming up now to um, feel that this is a society that values them. And so... um, you know, I, I just feel like my mission and my passion is helping African American mm-hmm. women, particularly young women, um, really find their voice and feel empowered. And so, if if I could choose, you know, the part of my legacy that I think is more most important, I think that's the part that kind of motivates me um, the most. And so, that's what I hope my legacy will be: that Black women, um, you know, because we, you know, Black women are the number one voting block. We have the fastest-growing mm-hmm. businesses, but we don't have an agenda. We, we, you know, we mm-hmm. have the power, but we don't have an agenda. And so mm-hmm. um, I'm just glad that I've had this little piece of the world as part of our agenda mm-hmm. where I, I think I can make meaningful change, and then I guess it will be on to the next thing after this is over because it's not like the world's problems are going to end once we solve this rape kit problem. But we mm-hmm. um, are very, very grateful for the opportunity to work on it. Phenomenal. Well, Kim Trent, um, just want to thank you um, on behalf of uh, your niece and all the other young women, young girls, young women who watch you, who see you, who um, really benefit from all all that you do in the community. And just thank you so much for all your contributions. It's been a delight talking with you, Kim Trent. Um, leader, community leader, extraordinaire, uh, radical, uh, a risk taker, um, someone who's a terrific, terrific advocate for um, a leadership agenda, a black woman's leadership agenda who's not only talking the talk, 
but doing the walk. And so thank you again, Kim, for being with us and to our listening audience. Well, I've said it many times, Dr. Williams, but thank you. Oh, thank you. You You are an amazing leader and an amazing mentor, so thank you so much for everything you've done to help. I mean, certainly I've taken cues and just tried to follow your example, and I'm, I'm so grateful to have you as a mentor. Well, thank you, and again, back at you, and and uh, we'll be talking again soon, and we want to have you back uh, to make sure that 490 campaign is a terrific, terrific success. Thanks for tuning in. I appreciate in. it. Dr. Thank Geneva you. Speaks. Dr. Geneva Williams, an expert facilitator and leadership coach, lecturer, and keynote speaker. For more information on Dr. Geneva, visit her online at www. DrGenevaSpeaks.com That's DrGenevaSpeaks.com